We turn to the book of Romans, to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We read this chapter along with our treatment of Lord's Day 2 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 2 introduces the misery of man and gets at the source and the reason for that misery, sin, and the fact of the law exposing that sin. Romans 3 expresses that truth, and we look at it in that connection. We hear God's word as it's set forth here in Romans 3. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then, how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law... There shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith 
without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. May God bless his word. As I stated, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 2. We have it in the back of our Psalters on page 3. We've noted the theme of the catechism, the comfort that is ours, and the confession that we belong to Jesus. And now the catechism has stated how many things are necessary to know and enjoy that comfort. Three. And now we begin the first. How great my sins and misery are. So we have the first part of the misery of man. Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly in no wise? For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved, we come to a humbling section of the Heidelberg Catechism and that which is necessary for us to know true comfort. In order for me to know my need for Christ and to know the wonder of that union to Christ, I need to understand the hopelessness of my own life according to my nature. And that's what the catechism here is setting forth. Paul was very familiar with the law. As a matter of fact, Paul, as Saul, had been so familiar with the law that he was zealous to keep all the works of the law. And he boasted in that. He took pride in that. The fact that he was a Jew above Jews. That he had been instructed under Gamaliel, one of the chief doctors of the law, and that he understood the ins and outs of the law and had maintained that law perfectly in his life. That's his confession as he defends himself at times. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was Paul apart from the wonder of God's grace. Paul insisting that he had done what was necessary to earn himself a place in heaven because he was maintaining the law. If it was possible to be saved by the works of the law, Saul or Paul would know that salvation. He was an elect child of God, not yet regenerated at that time. But then God changed him. God took his elect child and now worked life, the life of Jesus Christ in his heart. And by that transformation, God caused a new principle now to guide his life. And the Apostle Paul was brought to see that he had been called from death to life. That nature, which is dead in sin, had now been given a life that was from above. And so now, though he yet has that old nature, 
He has now, by virtue of regeneration, a new life that lives within him, the life of Jesus Christ. And he confesses now that he is now dead to the law. He's now freed from the dominion of the law. He's now given to see salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And he realizes the law, that could never have saved me. I could never have kept that law perfectly as God required. He acknowledges and realizes that his previous pursuit had been a pursuit of vanity. He had been deceived by the devil. And now he sees the great need and the wonder of his salvation as it's in Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, that's the great need for all mankind. And that's the great need that we have. To know that our natures are given over to sin. And it's only by a wonder of God's grace that we're able to know deliverance through Jesus Christ alone. Dying to the law is necessary in order that by faith we seek our salvation then in Jesus Christ. Now that law has no power to save lost sinners. And that's the point now of Romans 3. The question that is raised is this. Was there an advantage to being a Jew over a Gentile in the sense that the Jews had the law, therefore the Jews are saved, but the Gentiles aren't? And the apostle addresses the fact that no, the Jews had nothing up on the Gentiles in terms of salvation. They were not capable of saving themselves by that law. In pride, we can boast and we can think that our salvation is on the basis of our faithfulness. And isn't it? Tragic how quick we can start thinking along that line. We start esteeming ourselves above others. We start looking down on others because they're not as diligent. They're not as faithful. We've been more diligent. In pride, we think, I can save myself if only I can maintain a bit more faithfulness to God's law. What the law could never do and what we can never do, God in sending his son marvelously accomplished. And that's the point of Romans three here. God accomplished that which we could never do. And he sent us Jesus Christ as the propitiation, that is the covering of our sin. He sent Jesus Christ as the one to whom we lay hold of by faith and through whom alone our salvation is found. What is the place of the law then? What's the importance of the law? God uses the law as a means to teach us his will. And that law exposes us It demonstrates that our natures are inclined to all sin and that we cannot in pride rise up and say that I have maintained perfectly God's commandments. And so the catechism now emphasizes man's depravity in order for us to see the victory that is ours in Christ. The catechism spends three Lord's Days digging into this subject of our misery and our sin in increasing depth. This Lord's Day first, speaking of that general knowledge. The next Lord's Day, speaking of the origin of it. How is it that we got this way? And demonstrating that we got this way because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And then finally, the inevitableness of that misery in Lord's Day 4 and the fact that there's no way out. There's no deliverance apart from a mediator, Jesus Christ, whom God himself will send. We understand the tragic situation in which we are of ourselves. And we acknowledge this morning the victory that is in Jesus Christ alone. We note the knowledge of misery, noting that knowledge, the demand, and the misery. 
The knowledge here is by virtue of God's law. The law is the criteria by which our condition is to be determined. We need a criteria. How can I determine what my condition is here on earth? And in order for us to determine that, we need to have some kind of criteria that we compare ourselves to. How do I know that I am miserable? And so the question is, is the criteria that is used that which, for instance looks back at myself in a previous time of my life? Is it that which compares myself to someone else, my parents, perhaps a friend of mine? We know that we need criteria in our lives. If we're trying to look for a husband or a wife, there's certain criteria we need. We need to understand and know what is it for which we're looking. And we realize that criteria also is not chiefly merely physical, but also spiritual. We're looking for spiritual traits. And we determine what is the standard? What is that which we desire? Now, as we stand before the law and we stand before God, we need a criteria in order for us to understand our condition. And the law is set forth as that. We determine our condition by looking into the mirror of God's perfect love. We don't make that criteria based on my standard of living, how much debt I have, what certain conditions are within my family or within the church. We don't compare ourselves with others to get a genuine assessment of that. God directs us to the law. Elsewhere, Paul says this in Romans 7, 7, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. And so the importance of this is that the essence of my misery is exposed as sin. That's something the unregenerate will never come to. But by God's grace, God's children confess that. The catechism is directed to Christians. What is the source of your misery? And as we answer that question, we don't give the answer that the world would give or the answer that we would be inclined by our flesh to give. We don't say we're miserable because of the way that we were brought up. Or perhaps because of the abuse that we endured from our parents or from others when we were growing up. Because of the fact that we experienced all kinds of health problems or because of all kinds of troubles financially or because we got picked on and because we were never accepted. All kinds of excuses we can come up with as to why it is that our life is now not as good as we would desire it to be. And while there may be important aspects to those and things that need to be worked through with regard to them, we acknowledge that we need to look away from those experiences that merely make us unhappy. And God directs us to what the source of our misery is. It's not all those things that have taken place in your life. It's not that you can point the finger at all of these other things and all of these other experiences. Rather, the finger is directed at me because of my sin. We're always eager, are we not, to point the finger at others. That was Adam's experience. He blames Eve. Eve's experience, she blames the serpent. So quick it is for us, when confronted, to point the finger elsewhere and to say, the reason why my life is not as it ought be is because of this or that circumstance in my life. Why is there trouble in your life? Why is there trouble in my life? My sin. That's the source of it. And that's the humbling nature of this Lord's Day. And that's what the apostle here 
by the inspiration of the Spirit, directs us to in Romans 3. Your misery is because of your sin. Quit pointing the finger. Quit trying to look at others. Quit trying to make excuses. You need to own up to the fact that your sin is the source of your misery. And the Catechism directs us to that very personally. Thy, that is personally my misery, canst thou, using the second person singular pronoun here to direct us to see that the problem is with me and with myself. But man is so depraved that he's not willing to confess his own sin. He's blind to that sin. And it's only God giving that new life of regeneration that enables now man to see himself as he ought. And God performs that wonder. So again, the catechism here is not directed to the ungodly, unregenerate one. It's directed to the Christian, the one who by God's grace now has that gift of new life and the one who is able to see that his sin and his misery is that which is reflected and shown by the law. The law convicts. And so that's the criteria. God's living law with regard to how it is that we're to live in the midst of this world. And what is the essence of it? Here Jesus demonstrated in Matthew 22 the wisdom that's from above. Jesus directs us not to specific commandment, but he directs us to that which is the heart of the commandment, love. Love God and love the neighbor. God's law is not just the Ten Commandments. It's his living will as he intimately is involved in creation and as he calls all creatures and all persons to live before his face. And that living will cannot be escaped. God's thundering command says, love me. Love me with everything that you are. And that's the call. Now we've seen the analogy before of God's living will with regard to every creature. God has a living will for the birds that enables them to fly in the sky, enables them to live on land, but a bird is not capable of living in water. If a bird goes outside of God's will for it, it's going to die in the water. A fish, God's living will for that fish is to live within the realm of water. If the fish thinks he can live outside of that, he's going to die. God's living will having to do with his rule with regard to all creatures and the way in which they're to show forth his praise before his face. Man was created by God as a living soul. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became that living soul. And God reveals to man what is his living will. Love me. Love me with everything that you have. Spend yourself for me. I'm the one who made you. I created you. And now you're to live in the midst of this beautiful creation in the service of your maker, your Lord. And anything outside of that sphere of love is death. And that's why God came to Adam and Eve in the beginning and said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eat of the tree of life and all of the other trees of the garden. And the day that thou eatest of that forbidden tree you will die. The sphere of obedience is a sphere of life, but the sphere of disobedience is death. Now God separates that knowledge from merely a feeling of unhappiness or that life is not going as I would want it to go. God gives us to know and to understand there's something more serious in my life, 
And that's my sin. And God works by his grace a hatred for that sin so that we turn away from it. We flee it. We fight it. We recognize not only the horror of that sin, but the consequences of it. And we realize what that sin does to our relationship to God. God has worked that new life within our hearts, and we love God, and we want to serve him, and now sin comes in the way. And that sin keeps us from entering into the fellowship and the communion of God. That's what we sang of. Who can come into the presence of God? Someone who's slandering? Someone who's backbiting? No. It's only in Christ that we're forgiven and he gives us the grace then by which we're able to look to him and to know his presence and his fellowship. We want to live close to God. We want to dwell with him. But we realize our sin distances us from him. And that moves us to repent. And it moves us to cling to the cross and to know our need for his grace. God works a godly sorrow in our hearts. And that godly sorrow rouses us to repentance. It exposes sin in our lives. It causes me to see areas where I've not lived in love toward my wife, my husband as I ought. Ways in which I've not lived in love toward my fellow classmates, my siblings. I've not loved fellow members of the congregation as I should. And we're convicted, we're exposed as a result of that. And the only possibility then of restoration is to know the mercy of God and to know that Jehovah God has given me a Savior. And through Jesus Christ, I'm able to know forgiveness not only, but I'm also able to know the strength to do battle against that sin and to seek to do what's right. I am not my own but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If I was my own, I would be doomed to death. But I belong to Christ. And by virtue of that union, he's embraced me in love, he's forgiven me, and now he's giving me strength to do what's right, to honor and glorify him as I walk down life's pathway. The law exposes my misery as sin. There may be all kinds of other problems in my life, But ultimately, I acknowledge it's my sin that is the chief cause. And what's my greatest need then? My greatest need is Christ. That demand powerfully comes to you and to me. And the demand of God's law is love me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now again, we see the brilliant wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ as he interacts with the Pharisees in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, we have that recorded. The Pharisees sent lawyers. They sent their theologians to Jesus to try to trap Jesus. And the way they wanted to trap Jesus is to get Jesus to acknowledge that there's one sin that's more important than the other sins. What commandment is most important? They had all kinds of personal debates over this. They were divided, and they allowed that question to divide them, and they took delight in that, carefully spelling out hundreds of precepts and commands and deciding which ones are more important, which ones are less important, and then taking great joy in the activity not only, but even the division that it caused so that there were different groups among the Pharisees. Some who said, well, the most important commandment is this one. Others said, no, 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 it's this one. And they would get together in order to dispute and to argue with one another about it. But all doing so in an ivory tower. Not in terms of how it affected them. Not in humility. Not acknowledging their sin. Merely in pride. 
And now they thought, we can get Jesus to join us. And perhaps he'll pick one commandment, and then what we can do is we have all kinds of arguments then that we can direct against him to show that he's wrong and to show that he's not faithful to God and to Moses. Jesus exposes the Pharisees by pointing out that they didn't understand the law. They have no conception of the nature and essence of the law. There's no one commandment that can be separated from the other. The commandments all hang together. And often we understand that very concretely. The violation of one affects many others. So that to say I just violated one commandment is virtually impossible. We coveted, and because we coveted, we broke this other commandment. And we understand that comparison and that link. It's necessary to look at the root of the law. And that's what Jesus directs them to see. What is the essence of the law? And the essence of the law is this. You need to be living not out of love for self, but out of love for God. And the whole of your life needs to be characterized by a pursuit of God and his will. That's what's necessary. The living will of God for all men is love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now the Jews were inclined to say, but we're different. And we don't have to live as the Gentiles would live. And as a matter of fact, they were inclined to say, but we're Jews. Look at what God's done for us. Look at the special dispensation that we enjoy. We have Abraham as our father. And we have all of these things that we can cling to that would demonstrate that we're better than others. And again, so easy it is for us to fall prey to that, to say, but I'm a reformed believer. I understand true doctrine. I understand better. I can argue and I can defend that truth and therefore I'm better perhaps than someone else or another. Paul takes them back to the Old Testament and they treasured the Old Testament. He actually takes them back to the Psalms and he points out from the Psalms, all Jew and Gentile are dead in sin. The Jews, though it's true, God preserved them as a nation and God gave them the privilege for a time of being those who were his chosen people, did not deserve it. There was nothing of themselves that put them in that situation. And as a result, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no fear of God. He's quoting here from Psalm 36, verse 1. And then he proceeds as it is written, verse 10, to quote from Psalm 14, demonstrating the Old Testament scriptures teach clearly that all, all men, without making any kind of distinction between Jew and Gentile, are sinners. And because of their misery and their depravity, they find themselves unable to save themselves. They need Christ. The Jews were blind to their own pride and they were inclined to say but no not us you know just look at how well we can argue look at how well we can keep the law and Paul emphasizes no you you are under sin you fail to keep the essence of the law because the essence of the law isn't don't commit adultery or don't steal the essence of law is love God and because you love God you refrain from those sinful activities and the result of that command, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is that no man can stand. All men are forced to acknowledge, I have not loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. It doesn't matter what your nationality, what your religion, the human flesh is depraved 
and is affected by sin. And love is that command that reveals the living will of God. God's living will is love me. Love me with the whole of your being, with all of your heart. And to love him with all of your heart is to acknowledge that I am the highest good, that there is no one else that's worthy to live for, and that you need to give me all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory through the whole of your life. Love is a willingness to suffer the loss of everything that seems dear to me for the object of my love. And therefore, I'm willing to lose everything and to experience the highest calamity necessary because of my love for God and my loyalty to Him. Love is to direct everything, the whole of my life. And notice, all of my willing, all of my thinking, the whole of my heart to God and to His service. And that love for God is exclusive. I can't say, well, I kind of like Him, but I also love myself. You either love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or you hate Him. There's no compromise. Man can't serve two masters. And so Jesus doesn't evade the issue. Jesus gives to the Pharisees the root of the law. He doesn't provide two commandments saying that there's two commandments and really one is the greater. There's one commandment, love God. And the second, like unto the first, is love the neighbor. They're not of equal value or force. The second flows out of the first and is dependent on the first. If you don't love God, you're never going to love the neighbor. And you show your love for God by loving the neighbor. And Jesus bases this now on the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets include the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. The whole Bible is based on this living demand of God. Love me with your whole heart and your whole being. Now the sinner stands before that command and he rebels. He rejects it. He pursues his own way, his own will. The only possibility of loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is if God first loves me and if God works a wonder of new life within my heart. And so speaking now to Christians as the catechism does, it's speaking to us who have been given now that new life. And now as we stand before God and we hear that command, love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, we acknowledge, I've not done that. I failed. God works that humility in our hearts and we take his commandments now and we apply them as he would. And so Romans 3.20 here identifies the law as the way in which we know our sin. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We realize that the Heidelberg Catechism makes use of the law in two of its sections. Here we have the knowledge of our misery. The second section is the knowledge of our deliverance. And then the final section, the knowledge of thankfulness. Now here, in the context of our misery, the law is introduced. One purpose of the law is to expose our sin and to show our misery. That's an important use of the law. The canons of Dort talk about that in the third and fourth head of the canon, stating that the law discovers the greatness of sin and more and more convinces man thereto. The other place where the law is going to be brought in is the third section. How do I show my gratitude? And then we see that another purpose of the law is a guide as to how we are to live to show all the praise and glory to God. So that God gives us his law to convict us, but also 
to serve as that which shows us the way in which we are to conduct our lives. Now, in the context of the law convicting and driving us to see our sin, we have this teaching. Now, the unregenerate man, he may be elect, but unregenerate, as the Apostle Paul was prior to being on the road to Damascus, does everything in his power to undermine the law. He makes all kinds of excuses about his own actions and his conduct. The law is just the opinion of men. The law is not that which I need to submit to. It doesn't apply to me today. He tries to argue away the place of the law and the significance of the law in his life. He doesn't want an objective standard. And sometimes, beloved, as regenerated children of God, because of our old nature, we can fall prey to that same sin. We deceive ourselves. We try to argue and say, but, you know, I don't need to maintain that. God wouldn't require that of me. And we try to make it so that God's commandments now become more subjective, more changeable, more based on the circumstances and situations of life. In other words, that God would have certain matters be sin in this situation, but other matters not in that situation. So quickly, the devil starts to get a hold of us. But by God's grace, the regenerated child of God looks at the law and sees himself in light of the holiness of God. And he sees himself in light of the demand of God, love me. And the issue becomes not merely do I understand from an intellectual manner what is being taught here. It's not do I understand about sin and about natural man. But the issue is do I understand this is the truth concerning me. This is the truth concerning my life and my walk. That I am inclined to every sin. That I'm inclined in pride to esteem myself above others. Do I know that my inclination is to give in to temptation and to be guilty of violating every commandment? That's the wonder of the grace of God as he now opens our eyes. Now we say, what's the difference? The only difference is God's grace. A wicked man will not see his sin, will not acknowledge it. But God's grace is that alone which causes us to see our sin, to confess it. God's grace alone is able to keep us from walking down that path of self-righteousness, justifying our sin, continuing in the ways of darkness. By God's grace, we look into the law and we keep looking. And even though it's painful because it exposes sin, we pray, God, show me my sin. Expose the areas of my life where I've been perhaps convincing myself that this is justifiable and cause me to see that, no, I'm wrong. The things that I thought were okay to do on Sunday, I ought not be doing. The things that I previously thought were justifiable really are not. It was my own pride, my own sin that was making those excuses. By God's grace, we keep looking. We have to, and we see our misery. And we are brought to our knees to confess our sin before God. Now note the carefulness and the careful wording of this Lord's Day. As the Lord's Day is laying out our misery, and as it's emphasizing that misery, canst thou keep all these things perfectly? Very careful wording here. It doesn't say, 
Do you love God? Now remember, we're talking to a Christian. Does a Christian love God? Think of the psalmist. Oh, how love I thy law. The child of God loves God. The child of God loves the law. The child of God worships, prays, reads the scriptures. That's not the point here. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? God doesn't require merely that you try. He doesn't merely require that you do it to a certain degree. God wants perfection. And that's, again, what humbles the child of God. The child of God, who has the new life of regeneration within him, yet has that depraved nature that doesn't change. And that depraved nature stays with him. It never gets any better his whole life long. He's a new creature in Christ now. He has that new life in Christ. But he recognizes that there's no possibility of my loving God perfectly. Do I love God? Yes, I love God. Can I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. So that there's no possibility of my love for God serving as the ground or foundation of my salvation. My salvation is all of grace. Notice also the carefulness here. In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Again, the carefulness of the catechism here. I am prone by nature. My nature remains within me. It is sinful. It is depraved. It is given to the pursuit of every sin. And because of that nature, I am prone to walk in an ungodly manner. I have that new life of Christ. I rejoice in the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy toward me. But that nature within me is yet inclined to all evil. So again, the child of God, redeemed in Christ, does not say, I hate God and my neighbor. That's the whole of my life. All I can do is hate God and my nature. No. The child of God understands who he or she is. I'm one who has that old man. But now I have the new man that's in Jesus Christ. But because of that old man that's going to live with me and remain in my flesh until I die, my nature is going to constantly be holding me back from loving God as I ought and loving God as I should. And we just think about that, how true this is. Again, I confess this is me. And you need to confess this is you. Love God. Was I loving God perfectly this morning when I woke up? Or did I wish I could stay sleeping and didn't want to have to hear my alarm clock glow? Was I loving God perfectly when I awoke and when I remembered it was Sunday and it was time to go to church today? Was I loving God perfectly in everything that I did with regard to my interactions with my family or my circumstances personally? Was my response that of the psalmist immediately in Psalm 122? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Or was it more grudging, more hesitant? Again, beloved, I love God, but do I love him perfectly? Do I love him as he commands? No, I see within me that nature that yet despises God, hates God, and yet leads me to selfishness and the pursuit of my own will. There's no salvation through the law. The law pricks, and the law drives me to my knees in confession. 
And I'm brought to see my salvation is only through God, through a wonder of his grace. And there's only one conclusion. I need Christ. God's command is love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And while I love God because he's put that new life in me, I realize my nature remains depraved and sinful. And therefore, I cannot love him as I ought. I am not walking as I should in my life and my walk. And therefore, I know my need for Christ. My misery is because of the fact I'm not loving God as I ought. And because I'm not loving God as I ought, that misery is going to remain in my life until the moment that I die. But thanks be to God for the gift of a Savior. And that's, again, echoed by the canons adored in the third, fourth head, Article 6. We referenced Article 5, now Article 6. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law could do That God performs by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation, which is the glad tidings concerning the Messiah. By means thereof, it hath pleased God to save such as believe as well under the Old as under the New Testament. What the law could never do, what the light of nature, giving us a conscience, enabling us to know right or wrong, could never do, God has done. And he's accomplished that wonder through the cross and through the gift of a Savior. And so by God's grace, our confession is, I am miserable. And my misery is not due to what others have inflicted on me. My misery is not because of the circumstances merely of my life. My misery is because I'm not loving God as I ought. And every single day, I fall on my knees ashamed. I know what great love he's shown me. I know what great wonders he's performed on my behalf. And yet, I fail. I don't respond with the love that I owe him. And every single day, I find myself given over to lust, and I give myself over to those same sins. And though I'm ashamed of it, and I cry out for mercy, and I know the forgiving mercy of God, yet I find myself doing it again and again. And sometimes I'm actively trying to chase God out of my life. I don't want my conscience to be pricked. I don't want God to be exposing my sin. We confess with the apostle. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. We put ourselves in that category. That's me. That's me by nature. I'm in that same category. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 23, that's me. I'm not rising up in pride and saying that that's others merely. That's me. And we make it personal. I have sinned. I have fallen short. There's no boasting on my part. I am under the power of sin and there's nothing I can do to save myself. My salvation is all of grace. And again, thanks be to God for the wonder by which he has given me the life that is from above, the life of Jesus Christ. As a new creature in Christ, knowing the wonder of that regeneration life, I rejoice and I'm thankful. And I stand in awe and here the canons of Dort are beautiful too, trying to describe what that regeneration is and what that regeneration life is, making reference to it with words like ineffable. That is, it is so glorious and so marvelous that we can't even begin to understand it. Using words that refer to the wonder and the marvelous character of it so that all our life long we're standing in awe. What a wonder God did in giving me the life of Jesus Christ. 
giving me the ability to know that though I die, I will live. Giving me a life that's from above. This is a wonder of wonders that all my life long I'm going to stand in awe of. But as marvelous as that wonder is, that old man still remains. And that depravity still clings to my nature. And it humbles me my whole life long. And the consequences of my sin are abundantly evident. And I confess my great need to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. To know not only the wonder of his forgiving mercy, but to know the full deliverance which will be mine on that day when he will finally at death put away that old man of sin and incorporate me into the fullness of that life within his tabernacle. The child of God acknowledges with humility his sin and his sinfulness. If God's law merely required of us to do some things and abstain from other things, we would fall into the same category as the proud Pharisees. We would be just like that young rich man. All these things I've done from my youth. I've I've not killed anybody. I don't steal. I don't say bad words. But God says, no. The law comes to you and the law says, love me. Love me with everything that you are and the whole of your being and do it perfectly. And there's not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That's Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Again, Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Our situation, apart from God's grace and Jesus Christ, is hopeless. We lack, even as those who are regenerated yet, the ability to overcome the power of our natures. God gives us his grace. God gives us that new life. By virtue of it, we repent. We turn from our sins. We seek to flee that which is wrong and that which is sinful. But yet, we cannot do so perfectly. How crucial that God, the Holy Spirit, reveals not only the demand, not only the curse of the law, but also gives us to see the way of salvation. And that way of salvation outside of ourselves, apart from anything of ourselves. With Daniel, we cry out, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets. Daniel 9, verses 5 and 6. With Isaiah, we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses as our are as filthy rags, and we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But by a wonder of God's grace, confessing our sin, we're brought to cling to Jesus Christ by faith. Confessing my righteousness is in Him alone, that God has sent Him, and through Him I am freely justified by His grace. Through Him I have the covering of all of my sin. And through him, I know the wonder of everlasting life. And so with the, with the apostle, we conclude, where is boasting then? There's no room for pride. There's no room for boasting. It's excluded because our salvation is all of grace by faith alone. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we are humbled to the dust. We confess that we owe our all to Thee. 
Keep us from the pride that reigns within our natures. Give unto us the humility by which not only we might confess our sins before thee, but also before one another. And work in us that knowing our sin and our misery, we might cry out by faith, knowing the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect work that he's performed on our behalf and the hope that we have in him alone. Amen.